Thanks, Marielle. Thanks, Brianna. I was, I was hoping that was you. Appreciate the message. Okay, we're recording. Okay, English 256. Happy Monday. A whole new world in this class, okay? A different approach to everything, really from here on going forward. I mentioned this a little bit on Friday, right? But just to rehearse it a little bit for those of you who weren't around or haven't listened in, right? We're taking a kind of different um, tack for most of the rest of the semester. So whereas for the vast majority of the class time, the semester that we've had, we've been reading kind of like nonfiction works, things to orient ourselves to some of the concepts in the class, some historical material. We've been reading mostly nonfiction works. Now for the rest of the semester, we are going into things that more properly we understand as kind of uh, general readers, more properly we understand as literature. Okay, so we have three weeks of poetry and then three weeks of a novel. Um, this might be exciting for you in the sense that like you want to read imaginative work and you want to read work that's considering language and in different ways. It also might be kind of um, unnerving to you because as so many people said in the forum, right, like um, it's kind of hard to make sense of what's being said, right, because poetry, of course, especially poetry, um, there's a gap between the way the language is put on the page and the meaning of the poem itself, right? There's a gap between those two things. And we have to talk about how to bridge that gap. And that's kind of the process of interpretation that we're gonna go through. So it's a different approach now in this kind of second half, as it were, of the class. We're reading different things, we're reading new things, and it's gonna ask of us a kind of different interpretive method, so to speak. And so this week, really it's my intention in the comments that I make to you guys on the forums and in our classes as well. This week, it's really my intention to kind of model with you how to read poetry, right? And then the two weeks after that, we'll continue to kind of read and analyze with the intention that at the end of these three weeks, right, you have a paper due, right? The poem analysis paper due on November 2nd. The prompt for that is up on Blackboard. We talked about it a little bit on Friday and we'll talk about it more in the next couple of weeks. So any questions about any of that? Where we've been, where we're going. Okay, so I wanna start in on um, some of this poetry from Laura Da. So um, Marielle who's here mentioned um, in her post, right? I think something that's really important that we don't want to kind of set aside here. Matt mentioned it too. The idea that Laura Da is by profession, by trade, she's an educator. She's a high school educator. And that kind of, I, that kind of perspective filters through a lot of what she's writing about. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that today. But I want to start, and I'm going to share the screen here in a second. Um, I want to start with this poem, A Mighty Pulverizing Machine. Um, so I'm going to share my screen. Let me know. Give me a, a thumbs up or something if you um, can see it when I share it. People see that screen? Thumbs up. Okay, thanks. Gonna make it bigger. All right. Let's see here. Be able to see all of you. Cool. Okay. So Austin, are you there? Yeah, sorry, I'm just moving, moving rooms. No, no, that's okay. I wanted to ask you and take your time. I wanted to kind of have you speak on one of the things that you've said in your post, right? Because you mentioned early on in your post 
that like you feel as if when reading particularly this poem, there's like some history that you need to know that's not necessarily there on the page. Is that the case? Can you say a little bit more about that? <clears throat> Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, particularly in this one, um, I guess what came to mind was what we had learned. Um, I think it was in the previous reading where they, they were given land. Um, I think in like the, 19, the late 1800s they were given land. And there was another act where they were taken away and then they were given land again. Yeah. I feel like that's what this poem was um, connected to. Yeah, great. So like the context there that we uh, offered in one of our discussions about King really comes to the fore in this poem. So I want to go over some of that history before reading it. So as Austin is kind of um, suggesting to us, this poem called A, Mo A Mighty Pulverizing Machine, this poem is about an act of Congress from 1887 that was called either the Dawes Act or the General Allotment Act. And uh, that act was described by its authors as, quote, a mighty pulverizing machine for breaking up the tribal landmass. So what this act did is it authorized Congress to divide up native land into 160 acre parcels. And then those parcels were given away to individual native people, right? The intention was to assimilate native peoples into settler society. And the unstated attention, intention, but the thing that you know, obviously occurred is that within a couple of decades, native land in the United States was reduced by two thirds because of the Dawes Act, right? But the Dawes Act was called a mighty pulverizing machine for breaking up the tribal landmass. And I copy and pasted a little bit of language from the beginning of the act to show you kind of what that language looked like. And then to kind of ask you after we read this poem, how the language of the act is connected to the language of the poem. So you'll see in the language from the act to each head of a family, one quarter of a section, a section is a certain amount of acres to each single person over 18 years, one eighth of a section to each orphan child under 18 years of age, one eighth of a section and so on and so on. I think that's really important context for understanding what Da is doing in this poem. So what I'm going to do is read um, the poem and we're just going to talk about it, right? So I'm going to, we're going to focus on a mighty pulverizing machine and then we're going to focus on um, uh, passive voice and then we might talk about the Haskell school one as well. So just bear with me as I read through this and we can talk about what's going on. To each orphan child, so long as you remain close enough to walk to your living kin, you will dance, feast, feel community and food. This cannot stand, 80 acres allotted. To each head of household, so long as you remember your tribal words for village, you will recollect that the grasses still grow and the rivers still flow. So long as you teach your children these words, they will remember as well. This we cannot allow, 160 acres allotted. To each elder unable to till or hunt, so long as your old and injurious habits sing out over the drum or flicker near the fire, you cripple our reward. We seek to hasten your end, 80 acres allotted. To each widowed wife, so long as you can make your mark, your land may be leased. A blessing on your mark when you sign it and walk closer to your favored white sister, 80 acres allotted. To each full blood, so long as you have an open hand, we shall fill it with a broken plowshare, 160 acres allotted. To each half blood, each quarter strain, so long as you yearn for the broken plowshare, 
you will be provided a spade honed to razor in its place. When every acre of your allotment has been leased or sold, you will turn it on yourself. From that date begins our real and permanent progress. Okay, what I want you to do first, and this is a kind of process that we need to build up in how we read poetry over the next couple of weeks. What I want you to do first is just notice patterns, repetitions, things that stick out to you before you even tell me why they're important. Right, the first thing you want to do when you read a poem is just notice, just observe at the level of content, at the level of language, at the level of form. What do you notice about things that recur, things that stick out, patterns? Where, um, go ahead, what do you think? I notice in like each little section, it points out an aspect of Native American culture, and then it basically says, like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And mm -hmm. then it just says, it like, gives them a certain amount of acres. Good. So you're noticing the pattern that recurs in every single stanza, right? So in every single stanza between the beginning to each head of household and the end, a certain amount of acres allotted, there are two things. And Tucker is bringing us to those two things. Can you say that again, Tucker? The two things that are in between the bracketed portions of the language? So what I noticed was one of the things that points out an aspect of Native American culture that's valued by them. And then the second part is basically a denial of that culture saying it's not allowed. Good. Yeah. So like the, the kind of clearest example of that is, but it's true of all of them, but maybe the clearest example is like the first one, right? So long as you remain close enough to walk to your living kin, your family, you will dance feast and feel community. So, so long as you are close to your family, you will practice your culture. And then a hard stop and then stop there. And then this cannot stand, right? So we have, as Tucker is saying, this kind of like aspect of native culture and then a denial of it, okay? In every single stanza. This plays really nicely with something that Anthony mentioned in the post, right? Anthony, you mentioned that like, it's difficult to wrap your head around exactly what this poem is doing, but you do have a sense of the tone, right? Do you remember what you mentioned about the tone of this poem? Sorry. Uh, yeah. Like it's very like, it's, it's, wait, what did I say exactly? Once. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you don't, I don't want to, I don't want to wait. You, you use the words condescension and hypocrisy, but can you just, and, and negativity, but can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was a little confused this week, my bad, with the, um, wait, I'm pulling my post up right now. Sorry, I'm like. No, it's okay, yeah. I did the wrong one this week, remember, and then. Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, pulling through and doing the right one as well. Yeah. But yeah, at the beginning of that post, you're mentioning something about the tone, right? Mm -hmm. like, when you start to talk about a mighty pulverizing machine, you mentioned that there's a kind of tone of condescension or a tone of hypocrisy. There's a sense of negativity. Yeah, like, I didn't quite understand, like, the poem exactly, but I was able to pull that, like, pull it out that it is kind of like a negative, like, vibe to it almost. Like, it's, it's like, creepy. Like, I found it almost creepy, if that makes sense. Yeah, so there's, I sinister. there's something sinister about the poem, right? Especially in the way that like these small little staccato sentences come after the kind of declaration or articulation of a native cultural practice. Like this yeah, ex stand. exactly. It was just like, 
the vibe was just like yeah just creepy and like like you said i don't know different this cannot stand this we cannot allow we seek to hasten your end right so this kind of like overbearing presence that is um denying something to native people okay so we've kind of observed something about the tone right we've observed a little bit about what which one of what each of these stanzas does Tucker brought us to what the middle of each stanza kind of does or what the pattern is at the middle of each stanza. What about at the beginning and the end of each stanza? When I say stanza, that's basically the word that we use to describe a paragraph in poetry. So at the beginning and the end of each stanza, there's a pattern, there's a repetition until the last stanza, right? There's a pattern or repetition. What is that pattern or repetition? I was just saying, um, like the things that they once had, things that they were able to like do, whether you were like an orphan or you needed something, now that's gone because like the acres that they used to live on are allotted. Okay, okay. So Matt, you're moving us rightly and justifiably into the realm of interpretation, which is where we want to end up, right, when we're doing this poetry analysis. But we want to start before we get a lot of hand motions to answer when we want to we want to get to interpretation but before we get there all we want to do is we focus we want to focus on these details we want to focus on the patterns and how they're repeating each other right so before we even go to where matt is taking us all i want to hear is what happens at the beginning of each stanza and what happens at the end of each stanza just literally literally what type of language recurs what's the pattern at the beginning of each stanza and at the end. You, I mean, it's such a simple question, it almost doesn't, isn't worth asking, but I'm gonna try and um, demonstrate to you that it actually is really worth asking. So what happens at the beginning and the end? Um, they give like the type of person and then in the end they give how many acres they're allowed. Yeah, okay, so two each and then a type of person, an orphan child, a head of household, and then an amount of land allotted, so given to them. And remember, this is an important um, understanding for interpreting the poem. When the US Congress gives an amount of land to a native person, when that land is allotted to that native person, that's actually not a good thing, right? Because it's taking that land away from the tribal landmass and giving it to an individual. So even though like we think of giving land to somebody as a good thing, in this context, for native people, it's not because it takes that land out of the control of the tribes themselves and puts it into the control of individuals, right? But yeah, as Izzy is mentioning to us at the beginning and the end of every stanza, there is the two each and then amount of land allotted. Now go back on this slide and look across from the poem to the language from the actual General, General Allotment Act. Okay. This is where, as Austin was telling us at the beginning, where we need to have a sense of history to begin to understand what this poem is doing. So what's the connection between the language from the General Allotment Act and the language from the poem? They use the same sentence structure with like the two each type of person and then the amount of land. Great. Yeah, Izzy, exactly right. So what you're noticing is that in every sentence we might say, or every section of this passage from the law, right? There is a repeating pattern that Laura Da also repeats in her poem, okay? To each part of the family, a certain amount of land, all right? 
So we know now that we have this kind of historical context that Laura Da is using the language of this law, right, as a model for her poem. That should give us insight into what she's trying to do in her poem, because you'll notice that she doesn't just stick to the language and the pattern of the law between the to each type of person and the amount of land allotted between there is something else, right? So how do we interpret what Laura Da is doing then? Why is she using this law? Why is she using the language of the law? She's not supporting it, right? What is she doing? Tucker, I think you're muted. Um, um, Peyton. Oh, sorry, hold up. Who's, who else is speaking? I'm not sure. Izzy. Oh, Izzy, okay. Um, Izzy and then I'll go to Tucker, okay? Peyton Mann said in the chat that her mic's being weird, but then she ah. said she builds up hope, shoots it down, and then states a matter of fact, and it's jarring. Cool. Thank you, Izzy, for finding that. I gotta, I have to pull up the chat because I can't see it while I'm sharing my screen. So give me one sec. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Okay, so Peyton, your mic's being weird, but this is a really great point, right? She brings the law to the fore. She begins the stanza with it, right? But then she interrupts the passage of that law, right? With that long dash, right? The law is stated, but then it's interrupted. And there's a break. There's a jarring break, to use Peyton's word, right? That objectivity of that law, the legalistic language of that law to each orphan child, right? That is broken. And in the gap, between the beginning and the end of the language of the law, Laura Da inserts something else, right? Tucker, do you want to add to that or were you just pointing out that I wasn't looking at the chat as well? Oh, no, I was just going to say, even though like at the face value, the language is very similar, it almost has like a sarcastic or rhetorical tone to it. Mm. Totally, right? So the language of the law that Da is using is objective and factual, it's legalistic language. But she, by including something in between this language, in between the to each orphan child and the 80 acres allotted, what she reveals is that legalistic language, the language of the law is in fact not particularly objective at all. The intention behind it is what she reveals, right? The intention behind the putatively, superficially, objective language of law is what Laura Da reveals when she breaks that line with that long dash, right? She breaks that line off with that long dash. And in its place, she includes something that reveals the buried, hidden intention of the objective language of the law, right? So the idea, yeah, go ahead, Austin. Um, <clears throat> <clears throat> after the, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what year it started. I know, like during the um, Trail of Tears, they were forced to move. But I, during during the late um, 1800s to the whatever 1900s, weren't they um, allowed to? Didn't they sign the treaty? Like I thought they were tricked into signing treaties, or was this all against like their own will? The General Allotment Act was uh, was um, against the will of the native tribes that 
it was enforced upon. So the allotment wasn't enforced upon all native tribes, but it was enforced upon many, right? So yeah, no, it wasn't, wasn't like agreed to by the native communities, right? It was, an, it was an imposition, right? It's an imposition that's in the guide of doing something to, in the guise of doing something for their benefit, right? The idea that like you would give a head of household 160 acres, like on its face, that seems like something that would be positive. Right, but it's actually negative. And the reason why is that when you give that land to an individual, you take it away from the tribal collective. And then the other thing is that if you give that land to an individual, that individual can sell that land. And it's often the case that those individuals would sell that land to white settlers. Right, so what happens as a result of the Dawes Act is that native land, native people lose about two thirds of their land in the United States. Right, because it's either taken or settled on by, by whites. Um, so yeah, it was an imposition, not something that they agreed to, right? So I guess what I wanna kind of come around to in, in thinking through what Peyton said and what Tucker brought us to, right, is this idea that when we read this poem, there's kind of a deep embedded history to it. And once we understand that deep embedded history, we can better understand what Laura Da is trying to do. She's taking the language of the General Allotment Act and she's breaking it apart. She's realizing that that language seems objective, right? It seems on its face, the language of the law is just, this is what we're gonna do. This is how it's going to go, right? She's breaking that objective language and in the break, in the gap, right? She's inserting what she feels are the intentions of the act like the buried or hidden intentions of the act. And to go all the way back to the beginning, those intentions are what Tucker brought us to, right? This idea that there are native cultural practices that settler populations who are drafting this law want to get rid of, right? Things like dancing, feasting, and feeling community and food, things like culture, things like to go to the next stanza, language, right? Things like to go to the stanza after that, like the practices of elders, right? Um, to go after that, like uh, making marks, like signing away your land, right? So the idea here is that what Laura Da is doing is kind of really fascinating. She's taking the language of history, she's taking the language of law, and she's using the language of poetry to unearth, uncover, or reveal that that language of history or of law is not as objective as we assume it to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anything to add? Anything, anybody wanna to add to the interpretation of this poem? I wanna just model for you guys again and again, over and over, this is what I'm gonna do for several class periods. I just wanna to model to you how talking about and thinking about poetry works. You begin with observing and isolating patterns or things that stick out to you. And then you begin to ask, why are those things there? What are they doing? And how do they relate to the content of the poem? So what we've done here is we've noticed that, okay, it's really strange that like there's a pattern here where in every stanza, there's a beginning and an ending that seem the same, but then there's something kind of distinct in terms of tone happening in between, right? And then we use that pattern that we observed to kind of deep dive, reach back into history, 
and to LoRaDA's source. And once we understood LoRaDA's source, it helped us to better interpret the point or the message of the poem. Okay, so let's do that again. Let's take like the last 20 minutes here um, and go to passive voice, which is kind of a, in some respects, an easier poem to understand in certain ways, right? At least until the last couple of stanzas. A couple of people wrote about this, particularly about like the tone shifts over the course of the stanzas, and I want to talk about that. But let's read it and then think it through. So this is uh, Laura Dot Passive Voice. I use a trick to teach students how to avoid passive voice. Circle the verbs. Imagine inserting by zombies after each one. Have the words been claimed by the flesh-hungry undead? If so, passive voice. I wonder if these sixth graders will recollect on summer vacation as they stretch their legs on the way home from Yellowstone or Yosemite and the byways historical marker beckons them to the site of an Indian village where trouble was brewing, where after further hostilities, the army was directed to enter, where the village was raised after the skirmish occurred, where most were women and children. Riveted bramble of passive verbs etched in wood, stripped hands breaking up from the dry ground to pinch the meat of their young red tongues. Cool, beautiful image at the end, but really enigmatic at the end. Like we're gonna have to figure out what she's exactly saying in this last stanza. But prior to this last stanza, what is this poem about? What's the kind of scene? What's the context of this poem? What's it about? Just literally speaking. About like westernization and how that brought so much violence from the settlers into that region and into the Native American people's communities. Totally, yes. But again, just like we did with Matt, this is like something that we have to do over and over and over again. I have to stop you guys from saying smart things right off the bat. And this is, this is such a strange thing to ask you to do, but I have to because I have to show this process. Okay, so stop saying smart things, right? Just start saying obvious things. I'm serious. Start saying obvious things. What is this poem literally about on the page? The beginning of it. What's the scene? What's the situation? What's the scenario of the poem? It's about a teacher teaching her students how to um, avoid passive verbs. Yeah. And she has a particular strategy, right? Does everybody know what the passive voice is? Avoid oh, the passive voice is a grammatical construction where you say that something has happened, but you don't say who has done the action. Okay, so you say, the lawn was mowed. The person was killed. Okay, the book was read. Right, in all of those um, examples, we're using the passive voice, right, because we're not telling our you know, audience, who is doing the action? Who mowed the lawn? Who killed the person? Who read the book? That's passive voice. It gets rid of the doer of the action, right? The lawn was mowed, the book was read, the person was killed. It gets rid of the doer of the action, right? So the action itself is subsumed, right? The person who's doing the action is subsumed. So yeah, as Matt is telling us, right, this poem is literally about 
Laura Dodd, as a teacher of sixth graders, giving her sixth graders a strategy for understanding whether or not they're using the passive voice. And if you've taken like writing studies 101, right, your teachers always tell you, don't use the passive voice. Why? Why not use the passive voice? What's wrong with the passive voice? Um, it doesn't put enough focus on, on who's doing it. Yeah, and and when you don't and when you don't put enough focus on the subject on who's doing the action, what happens? Right? Peyton tells us it's not as effective. In what way? Why isn't it as effective? This is open to anybody, not just to Austin. Like, why isn't why is the passive voice seen as an ineffective way of expressing yourself? Because it's almost like too vague. You're like the lawn was mowed like okay so what who mowed the lawn why'd they mow it like there's too many questions right yeah i feel like it's not personal enough yeah it's ambiguous right because you're hiding the subject what happens is you're inviting questions about responsibility or you're hiding responsibility right like oh the person was killed right if you begin a news story with a man was killed earlier today right? You, you engender questions about who has done the killing. Maybe you want to hide who has done the killing, right? Yeah. So as Peyton says, like who, what for, and what's the consequence? All of these ideas aren't illuminated by using the passive voice. It's, it's inviting questions because it promotes or prompts ambiguities. Okay. That's why we want to avoid the passive voice. So teachers from the sixth grade all the way up to your CPN 100 classes at SUNY Cortland, what they're intending to do, right, is get rid of the passive voice because it prompts um, ambiguity and lacks clarity. So for Laura Da, the strategy that she uses is, okay, you have a, you have a verb uh, or a kind of verb phrase. If it's in the passive voice, at the end of it, you could include by zombies. And if that makes sense, then it's in a passive construction. So the lawn was mowed by zombies, right? So we know it's a passive construction. The first three stanzas are just setting up that strategy, okay? And Jennifer, Matt, a bunch of other people in your post, you notice that there's a big distinction in the tone from the beginning of this poem to the end, right? Matt, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I just thought that in the beginning it was like uh, you start off much simpler, like a teacher just teaching her students how to avoid passive voice. And then once you got towards the end, um, she kind of got into it with like the summer vacation. Like everyone goes, or some families go on summer vacations to like Yosemite and Yellowstone. And then that led into like the depths of Native American despair of like being taken over by, uh, by the having their land taken over. Yeah, great. So we have this radical disjuncture between the beginning of the poem and the end in terms of its tone, right? As Matt is telling us, principally in the first three stanzas, but even in the fourth, right, we have a pretty much matter-of-fact tone, right? There's no, it's, it's matter-of-fact, it's not kind of jocular or anything. It's a little humorous through the idea of like, if your words have been claimed by the flesh-hungry undead, like that's kind of a funny strategy to use, right? But it's mostly just matter of fact, whereas near the end of the poem, we get kind of something more serious, not necessarily sinister, but something much more serious, right? 
the stakes of the poem ratchet up over the course of the poem, right? So if we begin with something that's pretty much matter of fact, if not even a little humorous, and we end up with something that's quite um, serious, right? And the stakes are higher. The question is how do those two parts of the poem connect to one another? And the bridge, the hinge between those two parts is really the fourth stanza when Da says, I wonder if these sixth graders will recollect on summer vacation as they stretch their legs on the way home from Yellowstone or Yosemite and the byways historical marker beckons them to the site of an Indian village. So she's taking us now on a trip. She's saying, okay, I wonder if after I give this lesson to my students, if they will remember it when they see a historical marker on the side of the road after their summer vacation. We've all seen these, right? If you go down the New York State Thruway and you stop at a rest stop, big, huge blue and yellow historical markers, right? Or they dot kind of the country roads around New York State as well, right? Um, if you're the type of person like me, sometimes you stop the car or start going slowly in order to read them because you find them fascinating, right? But what Laura Da or the speaker of this poem wants to get across to us is that when her students go and see this historical marker, the language that's on the historical marker is all written in the passive voice. Trouble was brewing. The army was directed to enter. The village was raised, okay? What is Laura Da saying then about the language that's on the historical markers that um, mark historical Indian villages? What is she saying about the language that's on those markers? Literally. That it's in the passive voice. Okay, she's saying in her italicized language that the language on these historical markers is in the passive voice, right? because all of those constructions she's using in the italicized portions are in the passive voice, right? The questions that are brought up to us because they're in the passive voice are, okay, hmm, who directed the army to answer? Who raised, that means destroyed the village, right? Who did those things, right? So what is her critique of the historical markers then? Very dismissive because it doesn't, um Government doesn't take responsibility. Great. Dismissive, yes, definitely, right? But the broader point here is about responsibility and about agency. Can we talk through that a little bit more? Um, anybody else have something to add to Austin's comment about responsibility or agency? Who is responsible, who has agency, and does that responsibility or agency come through on the sign or not? Uh, no, it doesn't. It's almost like they avoid using specific names and things like that to like avoid being equated with these terrible things. Great. So. On these historical markers, what Laura Da is kind of asking her students to recognize or hoping that they recognize is that the use of the passive voice by the settlers who are putting up these markers is actually quite strategic. And the strategy is that you can talk about what happens in the past as a settler without implicating yourself in the actions, right? 
You can say, oh, it was a terrible thing. The army was directed to, an to enter and the village was raised, right? By using the passive voice, you can avoid putting a subject to that direction. You can avoid putting a subject to that action because of course, if you had to use the active voice, if you had to use a subject, the subject would be settlers, right? And so what the passive voice does according to the speaker on these historical markers is it allows for the people who are putting them up, who are all settlers, right? To avoid implicating themselves in the tragedies and traumas of the past, right? We can just kind of talk about what happened in the past, but not talk about the people who did it and not take responsibility for the people who did those things, right? That's what passive voice allows us to do, right? The village was raised by zombies, right? It just as well might be by zombies, right? Because the subject is not being told to us, right? But of course we know that the subject is settler populations, right? So she's critiquing these historical markers for the way in which they kind of assiduously avoid implicating settlers in the violence that has occurred in the past. That's what these historical markers do, right? And she's hoping that her sixth graders recollect that that's a problem and that it's something to be avoided, not only from a grammatical perspective, but also from the perspective, let's say, of politics or ethics or morals, okay? So we've kind of like fleshed out these first five paragraphs. What about the last one? It's a little more enigmatic. It's a little more difficult to understand what's happening with it, okay? Riveted bramble of passive verbs etched in wood, stripped hands breaking up from the dry ground to pinch the meat of their young red tongues. Okay. The sixth graders are the young red tongues, okay? But what is the riveted bramble of passive verbs etched in wood? She's describing something, right? But she's not telling us what she's describing, but by implication, given the context of the rest of the poem, we can begin to understand what thing she is describing when she calls something a riveted bramble of passive verbs etched in wood. What is that? I'm not 100% sure, but just uh, from seeing like breaking up from the dry ground, maybe she's circling back to like the zombie kind of thing. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, okay, Matt, again, you're kind of taking us to the next place, right? But you're totally right. You know, like the zombie, the kind of classic thing about the zombie is like they're underground and then they just break through, right? They break through the ground with both hands and they stick both their hands out of the ground, right? That's the kind of classic thing. And then they dig themselves out and they come above ground and they start to suck on everybody's brains, right? That's the zombie thing. Okay, fair enough. But what else has two arms that lift themselves out of the dry ground, given the context of what we're talking about in this poem? Signs. Yes, right? Historical markers have two arms that break themselves out of the ground and on the top, of those arms is what Laura Da calls a riveted bramble of passive verbs etched in wood, right? That's the historical marker. That's a description of the historical marker. She's calling the historical marker a riveted, like literally screwed in, riveted, 
bramble, all of these tangle of passive verbs etched in wood, okay? The historical marker is the riveted bramble etched in wood, right? But then Matt really thoughtfully and importantly brings us back to the earlier context from the poem. What she's suggesting by describing the sign as a riveted bramble of passive verbs etched in woods, stripped hands breaking up from dry ground, is she suggesting that these historical markers are like zombies, right? right? They're reaching themselves out of the ground and they are pinching the meat of the young red tongues of the sixth graders. Just like the zombie would. Do zombies suck blood? No, that's vampires. What do zombies do? Do they, they just, yeah, they go for brains. They just eat you, right? The zombies just eat you. They don't suck your blood. Okay, so if that's the kind of violence that the zombie does, What's the, what's the violence that the historical marker does when it reaches zombie-like out of the bare ground to pinch the meat of tongues? What does that mean? I thought it was kind of different than the, the zombie thing because when I read to pinch the meat of their red tongues, that kind of made me think of, you know, like hold your tongue. Mm -hmm. So with the passive language, they can't really that's used in the signs, they can't really talk about the truth and it's like forcing them to hold their tongue. Yes, no, it's literally that. The zombie arm or the arm of the historical marker lifts out of the ground un, from the dry ground, breaks it up, comes up to the surface and with that passive language, bear with me, it pinches your tongue, okay? Of course, if you pinch your tongue, you can't speak, right? So what is it about passive language, about the passive voice that makes people unable to speak? Just to put a finer point on what Tucker has just said. What is it about the passive voice that makes people unable to speak? What does it do to our ability to express ourselves? Like limits it. Limits it. Wow, Jinx, whoever just said yeah, that. Nice. Yeah. Um, Anthony, go ahead and then is it? I said, like, it, like, limits it because, like I said before, it can only be so personal. Yeah, right. Like, you can't, you can't really get very specific in a passive voice. It takes away certain of our ability to say definitively what's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. That's pretty much exactly what I was going to say, so... Good, we're, having, we're on a little bit of a mind meld here. I like that on a, on a Monday morning. Um, yeah, the idea of like pinching your tongue, right? Being unable to speak is that you can't speak the truth or the reality of the history of native oppression, right? You can't tell us who raised the village. You can't tell us who directed the army to enter because these historical markers are teaching you, but they're not teaching you in a way that allows you to understand who's responsible for these actions, right? So this poem, I really love this poem. It's really interesting how at the beginning, it's a very simple poem about teaching a lesson about a grammatical construction. And then in the fourth paragraph, something turns. There's a hinge point in the fourth paragraph where we move from this discussion of a grammatical construction to a bigger, broader issue. And the bigger, broader issue is how settler populations like um, dismiss or deny their responsibility for what has happened to native people in the past. 
and she's locating that dismissal or denial in the use of passive construction in historical markers. And then in that last stanza, that beautiful last stanza, such an imagistic and descriptive one, she wraps everything up by, as Matt was suggesting, connecting the image of the historical marker to the image of the zombie coming out of the ground. In both cases, she's suggesting that um, the zombie and the historical marker do a certain violence, right? And the violence that the historical marker does is that it pinches our tongue and makes us unable to speak about who has done the damage of the past, right? So in equating the historical marker with the zombie, she's bringing the sinister negative tone of the zombie to the historical marker and critiquing what it does and its purposes, right? It doesn't allow us to talk about the truth of history because it doesn't allow us to say who's responsible for the damage that has been done. Yeah? Okay, the last thing then, just to notice, I wanna to continue to bang this drum, right? Just notice, like we get to these ideas through a careful consideration of how the poem is put together. We look at the structure, we look at the tone, we look at the language, we begin to understand what exactly the poem is telling us. After we have that groundwork, after we have that foundation, right? then we build up to interpretation. Only once we have that foundation can we say something meaningful and interesting about that last stanza and what it's doing, right? We have to start with that foundation. And by the way, that's exactly, this process is what I'm asking you to do on that poem analysis that's gonna be due in uh, three weeks, okay? To start with that foundation and then build up, right? So that's what I wanna see and that's what I wanna continue to have you guys practice on the, um, on the forum. Any questions about any of that? Um, okay. I have yeah. one. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Izzy, it's fine. So when we're doing the discussion board responses, do you want us picking like one of the poems and then doing this like deep dissection or do you want us to like just brush over each of the poems that we read? I would like you just with all of the other posts, the, you don't need to do this process. What I want you to do though, is instead of just telling me what the poem says, right, or what it means, I want you to do that, but I also want you to attend to the language, right? Focus on the language of the poem, but that's no different than basically what we've been doing over the course of the semester. I want you to always focus on the language of the, of the reading and then make the move to meaning. That's even more important when we're doing poetry than, than stuff before. Does that make sense? Okay, this was fun. Thank you all for being here. Have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, yeah, I'll Have a good one. I'll stick around if anybody has questions. Thanks.